0: Scripture this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter five, picking it up in verse twenty-one as we continue to talk about the healing work of God. I invite you to follow along. When Jesus had crossed over, had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And then one of his synagogue leaders, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, came. And when he saw Jesus, Jairus fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now, once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? overhearing what they said Jesus told him don't be afraid just believe he had not let anyone follow him except Peter James and John the brother of James and when they came to the home of the synagogue leader Jesus saw a commotion people crying and wailing loudly he went in and said to them why all this commotion and wailing the child is not dead but asleep but they laughed at him And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kuhn, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's scripture is one of those rare healing moments that we find in the Bible. It doesn't happen this way very often where we are told about one healing story while we're on the way to another one. And the healing of, this blo- of the bleeding woman happens on the way to the healing of Jairus' daughter. And as you go through this uh, passage and the way Mark narrates it and the, the words that Jesus uses, make it very clear that in Jesus' own mind, these two moments belong together. that it, That there is some unifying work or word from God that is at play here. We're going to take... We're going to do something that's just a little bit maybe presumptuous and a little bit risky, which is to say, uh, over the next two weeks, we're going to consider each of these healings apart from one another. We'll, you'll overhear some of what they have in common, uh, but we just can't do justice to the fullness of what we just read in one sermon. So this morning, we are going to focus on the story of the synagogue leader named Jairus and his daughter. And next week, when you come back, you're going to hear the same scripture passage all over again, uh, but we are going to focus on the healing work that God does in the life of the a woman whom Jesus met along the way. Today, we're going to linger with Jairus and his daughter and consider what it means that God heals our weakness. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Your daughter has died. Why school the teacher anymore? That Greek word schulo is only used in two instances in the New Testament. The first is here in the story of the healing of uh, Jairus' daughter and the the woman who had been bleeding. The only other time that we have it is in Luke chapter 7 when we are told that Jesus was walking to heal a servant in the house of a centurion. So this is like a commanding officer from the occupying force from Rome. And we're told that in Luke seven, while Jesus was walking, that centurion sent messengers from his own house to say to Jesus, quote, do not school yourself to walk all this way. I am not worthy to have you under my roof. I believe that if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. And then we're told that Jesus did say that word and that servant was healed these are the only two instances we have of that word skulo, so we have to use some, some context clues to figure out what that Greek word meant and what the gospel writers meant by it. Some translations have the word bother there in place of skulo. Do not, do not bother the teacher anymore. Other translations, they, they make it a little bit more, they give it a little more oomph. They say do not trouble the teacher anymore. And I have to admit that to my ears, the choice between these two options, bother or trouble, is not the sort of thing I care about. <laughs> Neither of them can make that sentence work for me. Jesus, your, or Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? It doesn't get better <laughs> if you say Jairus, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? I have to tell you, when I quote that to you, there is something inside me that recoils, and I'm just quoting these people. I find it hard to say it out loud. It seems so callous, so offensive. I can barely bring myself to say it to you. Why bother Jesus? How can that be the question that you ask? How can you put that right after giving Jairus the worst news he has ever heard or ever will? How can you ask that question in the same moment that Jairus' head is still falling and he's not even crying yet because the tears haven't had a half second to well up and overflow? How dare you ask that question? Why bother Jesus? the teacher, for any longer. You can probably tell, I read this, I get mad. Like I get furious at these people from 2,000 years ago who are just bringing the message and they come to Jesus and they ask this question. I am furious at anyone who would seek to juxtapose one man's devastation with another person's inconvenience, even if that other person is Jesus himself. It's not just that One consideration outweighs another. It's that in my mind, like the two just don't even belong in the same sentence. You can't put those two things right beside each other. You can't talk about them in the same breath. And I am sure that there is not a single person here this morning who would ever do anything like that. Every one of you would know better than to say, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why bother Jesus? Y'all are much too kind, much too empathetic, much too classy. You're so much better than that. And then I wonder how often you've been afraid that your own healing was too unimportant to bother or trouble anyone with it. One week, I poured my heart out to friends. As I asked them to pray over a desperate situation and the next week, all I said was, we'll keep praying for that. By the third week, I decided that if they didn't ask about it, I wouldn't bother to tell them or give them an update. And by the fourth week, I didn't even pray for it myself. I didn't want to be a bother. You ever had a month like that? What keeps the man in AA from calling his sponsor? Sponsor. What is it that keeps the teenager from telling their parents about the dark thoughts that are running through their head? How is it that somebody begins to follow Jesus with all the passion and the hope and the world, and then somehow, somewhere down the line, they just kind of slowly fade away without saying a word to anybody about it? None of them want to be a bother. I can't think it's a coincidence that the only two times in the Bible that anyone worries about sculo, that anyone worries about whether they are bothering or troubling Jesus, is when Jesus is approached by a centurion and a synagogue leader, someone who would have had something like the civic power of a mayor or a church, a city council person, alongside their own religious responsibilities and authorities. It's only when people who are used to commanding And having authority, find themselves in a position to ask a favor that they are suddenly worried about. Sculo, about bothering or troubling. It's only when people who are accustomed to command and authority find themselves needing to ask for a favor that they cannot repay, and that they can't appeal to on the basis of some prior history with Jesus. Jairus is not able to come to Jesus and, able, and, and say to him, you know that time back when, when I helped you out like this? Jesus owes them nothing. And that must have been unusual for both that centurion and Luke and for Jairus here in the story. It was not very common for someone to owe them nothing. Nearly everyone in their lives owed them something. Whether it was obedience or respect Maybe an overly tardy tithe to the synagogue. And let's assume, for the sake of argument, that both these people who worry about sculo, who worry about bothering Jesus, let's assume that they both mean well. Let's assume they're both good men. Let's assume that that centurion was a great leader of his people. Let's assume that Jairus was kind and compassionate and thought well of the people in the synagogue. Let's assume they were both good leaders and they were benevolent bosses. And let's assume that they loved the people they served and, and led and that they appreciated them but you can't read this story or understand why they're worried about Skullo without understanding that even though Jairus loved the people he led, he led them and loved them from a position of strength. We can't miss out on how that strength affected his own relationship to Jesus. Can't help but wondering when when Jesus stopped on the way to Jairus' house, to look for that woman. And when he didn't just stop, but he, as Mark tells us, kept looking. Kept looking a little longer. Kept waiting. Stopping to take and ask questions of the disciples. Did Jairus think that was a power move? You ever wondered if somebody was keeping you waiting on purpose? Or maybe just because they could? To the woman who was healed, That moment that Jesus took to stop, to find her, to call her daughter, that moment changed her life. But for Jairus, it was a threat. It was agony and it was pain, it was awful. It must have seemed to Jairus as though Jesus was just ignoring him. (laughs) Proving a point or maybe worst of all, maybe it just felt like Jesus simply didn't care. Not as much as Jairus did. I know there is no more powerless feeling in the world than to see your child suffer. And now Jairus must have been thinking that he wasn't important enough to make Jesus hurry. And isn't that what we worry about when we feel powerless? Isn't that our secret fear It's not that we need to feel like the most powerful person in the world, right? It's not that we need to to be respected or have everybody snap to attention when we walk in the room. It's just that we want to know we're not a waste of everyone else's time. We just want to know that what we think is important matters. That's what Jairus must have feared when he fell at Jesus' feet. He's worried that the messenger's are right when they say this is all just a bother that's what the whaling crowd thought when jesus walked into the house and into that little girl's room uh, they all worried that this was just a waste of time why bother with it and then jesus finds that child and rewrites time itself He says to her, get up, and she stands in her own power. And in that moment, everyone is astonished to discover a God who has enough power to heal every need. And a God who has so much time that it can't ever be wasted. If we are a people of resurrection... If we are a people of eternal life who serve an eternal God. Then that has some important implications for us. If we're the sort of people who, when we've been praising God for ten thousand years, will only have just begun, then we have all the time we need. We have more power than we ever dreamed because we have the power to be patient on the things that cannot be solved by the quick fix. We have the power to take time and to bear with the wounds of a world that defies quick fixes and simple solutions. We have more power than we can dream of. But today I want us to do more than just celebrate the power we have in the resurrection and in eternity. What I also want us to be able to do is to name and to face our weakness. And to do that without fear. You have more power than you dream. And I want you to know that. But I also want you to know your own weakness, so you don't have to fear it. Before we celebrate strength, I want to take time to acknowledge our weakness because our weakness is a witness against a world that assumes everything is shaped by strength, that everything in the world is an exchange of strength. The way we see the world is that we see one person has the strength and the skill to provide some good or some service, and somebody else has the strength to pay for it. Every interaction is an exchange of strength. The way we understand the world is that I do you a good turn and I hope that you will do me a good one in return someday. And when we hurt one another, we ask things like, how can I make it up to you? How can I use my strength to prove that things are going to be better? In all these conversations, we are offering our own power whether it's a favor or money or some action we're going to do to make it right, we are offering our strength, our ability to make things better. And if that is our default, if we live in a world where we assume that everything that matters is an exchange of strength, then we are never going to understand what God really desires for us. Because if that is our default, if we ask God for healing in our lives, just so that we can get back to proving our own worth and prove that we're strong enough and that we matter, if we ask God to heal us just so we can be strong, then we will never understand the fullness of what God desires and we might send him away before the healing is done. We might ask God to fix us rather than really heal us. Because fixing is quick, but healing is slow. Any doctor can take a bone and set it in place and fix it so it won't move. But the healing takes longer. You can fix your signature to some papers to fix the terms of a separation or an agreement. But healing a relationship takes longer. True healing, the healing that God desires, the healing God is working, the healing that we need will never make us so very strong that we don't need any more healing. It will never make us so strong that we never need to ask for anything again. God will never give you so much strength that you no longer need grace. And the healing that we need is not going to eliminate our weaknesses, but it will teach us that they are nothing to fear. In the first two chapters of Mark, we learn something that only Mark tells us, which is that in the early days of Jesus' ministry, all of his healing and all of his teaching happened in the synagogues. He was invited into the synagogues of Galilee. He went about preaching and teaching, but then we are told, in the passage that Wilson was reading this morning, That there came a day when some officials came from Jerusalem, the central city, some high authorities, people who were more or less Jairus' bosses, and they came and they saw Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. And they said to the leaders of the synagogues, you have made a big mistake welcoming this upstart preacher into your worship spaces. He doesn't do things quite right. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's a threat to the faith and to all good order. And we're told from that point on in the book of Mark that Jesus spent all his time preaching and healing. Instead of in the synagogues, he went out into the fields. He went to the lake. He preached from boats. And occasionally he would go across the lake to the land of the Gentiles. And he would preach and he would heal there. And what we don't know from Mark is how Jairus felt about all that. He'd been a synagogue leader. We do not know if Jairus was glad or if he was a little sad when he and the other synagogue leaders told Jesus that his preaching and his healing belonged outside their walls. We don't know how Jairus felt about that. Maybe he kicked Jesus out reluctantly. All we really know is that Jairus didn't follow him into the fields. He might have been very glad that somebody was out there. That Jesus was doing that for the sorts of people who need it. And Jairus would be in the synagogue for the folks who needed that. It never occurred to him that he might need to be out there in the fields too. If it had ever occurred to Jairus that he might need Jesus, if Jairus had troubled himself a little bit earlier to go see what was going on, he would have seen what the the bleeding woman saw, which is that he didn't have to throw himself on the ground and prostrate himself, that he didn't have to worry about bothering Jesus, that Jesus has so much power that just the the touch of his cloak could do more than Jairus ever imagined. Things could have been so much different for Jairus if he had known that even in all his wisdom and his authority, he needed Jesus just as much as those folks out there in the field did. What I love about this story is that after all his reluctance, all the time that Jairus wasted not in the fields, after all the time that he let Jesus spend in the fields while Jairus took care of the synagogue, even after Jairus told himself that he could handle these things, like his little girl's cough and then her fever, and then the symptoms that got worse, even after all that time when the chills and the pains came, after all that time in which Jairus had not run to Jesus, even after all that time when it became too clear that Jairus's reluctance had been his greatest weakness, even after all that, it wasn't too late. Even after Jesus took the time to find that woman in the crowd and call her daughter, It was not too late for Jesus to to find Jairus' daughter and call her little girl. And when you discover that all the times you didn't want to trouble someone, all the times you didn't want to be a bother, when you discover that all those times that you thought you were just not being a bother were really the times you didn't want to admit your own weakness, when you finally come to that realization of your own need, it won't be too late for you either. It'll just be the beginning. Like it was for that little girl. She and her father, they were only just beginning to discover how deeply Jesus could heal. After all, even this miracle, astonishing as it is, it was not their salvation. No matter how Jesus heals us, no matter how he revives our bodies, that only delays the inevitable moment of death, the moment when we face the weakness that belongs to all of us. And that is not our hope. We are not saved by procrastination, by putting off our weakness a little bit longer. No, instead we are saved by death and resurrection. Our hope and our salvation is that even at our weakest moment, even when we have nothing at all left to offer Jesus, not even a final breath, at that very moment, when we are at our weakest, God will work his greatest healing. And eternity will begin. And we will know with all our heart that we were never wasting his time. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.